Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, June 7th through Saturday the 9th feature guest conductor Giovanni Antonini and mandolinist Avi Avital. The program includes Symphony No. 6 by Luigi Boccherini, Concertos for Mandolin by Vivaldi and Bach, a concerto for the Flottino by Vivaldi featuring Antonini, and Haydn's Symphony No. 103, The Drum Roll. Providing notes on the concertos is guest annotator David Schrader, an internationally known performer on the organ and harpsichord. He's been a soloist with many orchestras, most notably the Chicago Symphony. Schrader writes, The term concerto has had a long and varied history. The word is derived from the Latin for rivalry or struggle and therefore carries the meaning of opposing forces. In the early 17th century, the concerto was most frequently a piece of music that employed vocal and instrumental forces, thus producing works by Monteverdi, Schütz, and others that were called sacred concertos. A bit later in the 17th century, especially from the legacy of Arcangelo Corelli, the concerto became an instrumental piece, especially in the sense of a small group, the concertino, being pitted against a larger group, the concerto grosso or ripieno. In France, this sort of music-making took place during the career of Jean-Baptiste Lully, who referred to his instrumentalists as the Grande Bande and the Petite Bande. The Brandenburg Concertos of J.S. Bach comprise six highly varied works that all utilize a concertino and a concerto grosso. It's well to note that Bach's sacred cantatas are really the descendants of the sacred concertos of his ancestors, but with Italianate innovations such as recitatifs and arias. The solo concerto, of course, is the first that comes to the mind of today's listener. While the concerto with multiple soloists, such as the Sinfonia Concertante of Mozart and the triple concerto of Beethoven are splendid parts of the classical repertoire, the solo concerto assumed an increasing dominance during the 18th century, and its most enthusiastic producer was the Venetian violinist and composer Antonio Vivaldi. Born to Giovanni Battista Vivaldi and Camilla Calicchio, Antonio was the eldest of six children and the only one of them to pursue music as a vocation. Vivaldi came to be known as Il Preterosso, or the Red Priest, probably because of the genetic trait of red hair had been passed from his father, who for a time was engaged at St. Mark's Basilica in Venice under the name of Rossi. Vivaldi has left to posterity over 500 concertos for various instruments. This week's program includes concertos for the mandolin, which incidentally is tuned to the same pitches as the violin. The concerto for flautino would certainly mean a sopranino recorder in F, although it is played on the flauto piccolo. Vivaldi's inventiveness and quickness are well known, as is his recurring employment as the maestro at the Ospedale della Pietà, an institution that saw to the welfare and accomplishments of young ladies. The orchestra of the Ospedale was well known throughout Europe, but because of the customs of the era, the young ladies were to be heard and not seen, and therefore performed from behind a screen. The virtuosity evinced in the many concertos of Vivaldi offers a testament to the abilities and accomplishments of those who perform them.
Among his best-known works are the concertos known as the Four Seasons from Lestro Armonico, the harmonic inspiration. The two concertos of Vivaldi heard on these concerts share the tonality of C major and are cast in his common distribution of three movements. The first movement of the concerto for Flautino lacks a tempo marking, thus establishing that it was to be played at a tempo ordinario, or a tempo relatively close to one's own pulse. This tempo can vary, of course, because of the individuality of pulse beats, but we assume this tempo to be somewhere between 60 and 80 beats per minute on the metronome, which, by the way, was not invented until the lifetime of Beethoven. The movement follows a ritornello form, meaning that the entire ensemble plays an opening idea, and the solo material is placed in contrast to that idea with agile virtuosic material. The second movement, in E minor, takes on the character of a Siciliano, a slowish dance in 6-8 or 12-8, as heard in this piece, time. The Siciliano, thought to be of Sicilian origin, was often employed to convey a feeling of loneliness or melancholy in operas of the period. It carries a temple marking of Largo, broadly. The finale is a lively movement marked Allegro Molto for quite fast. In this case, the pulse of tempo ordinario is increased at the player's discretion. The mandolin concerto in C major is also cast in three movements. This is a modern trait for the day. The earlier examples of concertos often began with a slow section in the manner of Corelli. It begins with an allegro, also in ritornello form. The second movement, a largo as well, is binary in form, meaning that two sections are heard, each repeated and each going away from the home key and then returning to it. The last movement has no tempo marking, indicating tempo ordinario, but because it is written in 2-4 time, a faster tempo than regular pulse is assumed according to the practice of the day. Vivaldi was known as a first-rate violinist, easily the peer of Locatelli and Veracini. Remarks about his playing tell of astonishing technical achievements. His originality speaks for itself in his music. Despite all this, however, his reputation as an eccentric and boastful man spoke against him in some quarters, and he died in Vienna in obscure and reduced circumstances. Among the composers who acutely felt the influence of Vivaldi was Johann Sebastian Bach. When Bach was engaged in 1709 at the court of Weimar, he encountered his patron's musical library, which contained all of the fashionable new sorts of music from Italy. Vivaldi's music had a profound effect on Bach's style. Bach transcribed 19 of Vivaldi's concertos for the harpsichord and five for the organ, giving him the motoric rhythm with which a good deal of his music is associated. The concerto in D minor, catalog number 1052, originated as a concerto for harpsichord, but it is likely that it was initially written for the violin. It is also heard as the opening sinfonia of a sacred cantata of the Leipzig period, 1722 through 1750. The opening allegro of the D minor concerto is urgent, dark, and dramatic. Bach takes the model established by Vivaldi, but makes the exchange of material in the ritornello much more complex. 
driven throughout. This movement takes leisure only at a fermata about halfway through and then resumes its quick and deliberate character. Of particular interest toward the end is a pedal point over which the soloist traverses a multitude of sharp dissonances, finally plunging back into a reprise of the opening ritornello. The second movement's ritornello assumes the character of a repeated bass pattern over which the upper strings and the soloist play a pageant and highly embellished line. The movement is marked adagio, and it seems to presage in a pathetic character the lively final allegro. This movement is full of urgency, but a bit more playful than the first. An excellent essay in Molto Perpetuo, it includes a highly virtuosic cadenza-like section toward the end in which the soloist is first heard alone and then joined by the full ensemble. There is a final short adagio before the opening ritornello is heard again, closing the work. During the Romantic era, because of that epoch's regard for individualism and originality, there was a tendency to regard transcriptions as a poor stepchild of composition. As great a mind as Albert Schweitzer relegated the keyboard concertos to Bach's less noble efforts. During the Baroque era, however, transcription was common and respected. Bach probably created the keyboard concertos for concerts given by the Leipzig Collegium Musicum, which he directed. As an example of Bach's respect for the art of transcribing, some of his most celebrated works are reworkings of earlier compositions, most notably the Christmas Oratorio and the B Minor Mass. Program Notes by David Schrader. Schrader teaches historical performance practice and other courses at the Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University. And now on to Philip Husher's notes for the Haydn Symphony No. 103, The Drum Roll. The performance time, around 29 minutes. Between the two high-profile London residencies that marked the peak of Haydn's long career, he took on a brash new composition student from Bonn named Beethoven. The young man arrived in Vienna in November 1792, shortly after Haydn returned home from his first trip, and began lessons with him almost at once. Within weeks, they both realized the futility of the experience. A clash of personalities and a battle of wills undermined, even in its best moments, by the unspoken fact that Haydn was really Beethoven's second choice since Mozart had died the previous December. When Haydn returned to London in January 1794, Beethoven switched teachers without hesitation or regret, and Haydn defended his position as the greatest living composer by offering the British public six symphonies that still stand among the finest pieces in the form. Like many important works of art, they're not only summations of a grand tradition, they offer glimpses into the future as well. Despite their personal friction, it is with these scores that Haydn, in effect, passes the baton to Beethoven, who would begin his own first symphony just five years later. Haydn's last three symphonies, the ones we know as numbers 102 through 104, comprised for the 1795 spring concert season in London, are perhaps the most serious and impressive of his entire career, distilling everything he had learned in almost 40 years of working in the form, yet still alive in the irreverence and originality of a young adventurer. 
number 103 commands attention from its very first measure. Haydn begins, as he does in all but one of his 12 London symphonies, with a slow introduction. These introductions are subtle, dramatic devices that have a very fluid relationship with the movement that follows. They are about process, not exposition, and they allow us to hear material taking shape as if we were looking over Haydn's shoulder. The introduction excited the deepest attention, the Morning Chronicle reported after the premiere of this E-flat major symphony, not surprisingly because it is one of Haydn's stunners, opening with nothing but the long drum roll that gives the symphony its name. From this unexpected effort, like the solo piano of Beethoven's fourth piano concerto, it could only have been written for an audience that could be trusted to be attentive. The music slowly takes wing, first in the low strings and bassoon, and then gradually embracing the entire orchestra. Oddly, Haydn fails to give a dynamic marking to the kettle drum effect, leaving it to later editors and conductors to decide whether to capture their audience's attention with mystery or by force. The transition from slow introduction to allegro is unusually subtle, and the fast music that follows is as brisk and efficient as the opening was broad and mysterious. That doesn't mean the allegro isn't without an adventure or surprise. It even includes a speeded-up reference to the slow introduction. The development section is even longer than the exposition it develops, a shift in focus that Beethoven would eventually exploit, and as if to compensate, the recapitulation is highly compressed. But Haydn still takes time for one last glimpse of the slow opening, now complete with drumroll. The London audience liked the Andante so much that the orchestra played it again. This is a set of variations on two alternating folk tunes from the countryside around Esterhazy, where Haydn had worked for three decades, in what must have seemed to him like obscurity now that he was the toast of London. Haydn writes two variations on each theme. The tunes are so closely related themselves that one sounds like a variant of the other and even manages to work in a generous solo for his concertmaster. The minuet begins as boilerplate dance music and quickly turns into a richly nuanced symphonic movement. The innocent trio, too, grows in stature and complexity. Both minuet and trio turn out to be music of unexpected depth and consequence. The finale is one of Haydn's greatest. It begins with simple horn calls stated once and then immediately repeated as the accompaniment to a sprightly violin melody. And with that, a few seconds of music, the merest kernels of thematic ideas, Haydn has introduced all the material he will need to build an entire movement full of drama, suspense, and fire. A master of economy and a born storyteller who never runs out of interesting things to say and who is incapable of writing a commonplace phrase, Haydn is working here at the top of his game. Ever the perfectionist, he tightened the final pages, already a marvel of brevity, when he got back to Vienna. On March 2nd, 1795, the night Haydn introduced this dazzling symphony, he fully justified his position as the finest composer alive. Yet that same night, in not-so-far-away Vienna, the 24-year-old Beethoven made his debut at a concert given by Prince Lopkowitz and, quote, made everyone sit up and listen, unquote. 
Program notes by Philip Husher on Haydn's Drum Roll, Symphony Number no. 103. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. Thank you.